It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. It's great to have you with us for part two of Jack London's The House of Mapui. As you recall, a hurricane has struck a tiny island in the Pacific, and the people there, including our protagonist, are doing their best just to stay alive in the rising water and high winds. And now, our story. There it stood, the remnant broken off halfway up the trunk. One did not know what happened unless he saw it. The mere crashing of trees and wails of human despair occupied no place in that mighty volume of sound. He chanced to be looking in Captain Lynch's direction when it happened. He saw the trunk of the tree, halfway up, splinter and part without a noise. The head of the tree, with three sailors of the Aori and the old captain, sailed off over the lagoon. It did not fall to the ground, but drove through the air like a piece of shaft. For a hundred yards he followed its flight. When it struck the water, he strained his eyes and was sure that he saw Captain Lynch wave farewell. Raoul did not wait for anything more. He touched the native and made signs to descend to the ground. The man was willing, but his women were paralyzed from terror, and he elected to remain with them. Raoul passed his rope around the tree and slid down. A rush of salt water went over his head. He held his breath and clung desperately to the rope. The water subsided, and in the shelter of the trunk he breathed once more. He fastened the rope more securely, and then was put under by another sea. One of the women slid down and joined him, the native remaining by the other women, the two children, and the cat. Raoul, the supercargo, had noticed how the groups clinging at the bases of the other trees continually diminished. Now he saw the process work out alongside him. It required all his strength to hold on, and the woman who had joined him was growing weaker. Each time he emerged from the sea, he was surprised to find himself still there. And next, surprised to find the woman still there. At last he emerged to find himself alone. He looked up. The top of the tree had gone as well. At half its original height, it splintered and vibrated. He was safe. The roots still held while the tree had been shorn off its windage. He began to climb up. He was so weak that he went slowly, and sea after sea caught him before he was above them. Then he tied himself to the trunk and stiffened his soul to face the night, and he knew not what. He felt very lonely in the darkness. At times it seemed to him that it was the end of the world and that he was the last one left alive. Still the wind increased. Hour after hour it increased. By what he calculated was 11 o'clock, the wind had become unbelievable. 
was a horrible, monstrous thing, a screaming fury, a wall that smote and passed on, but that continued to smite and pass on. A wall without end. It seemed to him that he had become light and ethereal, that it was he that was in motion, that he was being driven with inconceivable velocity through unending solidness. The wind was no longer air in motion. It had become substantial as water or quicksilver. He had a feeling that he could reach into it and tear it out in chunks, as one might do with the meat in the carcass of a steer, that he could seize hold of the wind and hang on to it as a man might hang on to the face of a cliff. The wind strangled him. He could not face it and breathe, for it rushed in through his mouth and nostrils, distending his lungs like bladders. At such moments it seemed to him that his body was being packed and swollen with solid earth. Only by pressing his lips to the trunk of the tree could he breathe. Also, the ceaseless impact of the wind exhausted him. Body and brain became wearied. He no longer observed, no longer thought, and was but semi-conscious. One idea constituted his consciousness. So this was a hurricane. That one idea persisted irregularly. It was like a feeble flame that flickered occasionally. From a state of stupor, he could return to it. So this was a hurricane. Then he would go off into another stupor. The height of the hurricane endured from 11 at night till 3 in the morning, and it was at 11 that the tree in which clung Mapui and his women snapped off. Mapui rose to the surface of the lagoon, still clutching his daughter, Nikagura. Only a South Sea Islander could have lived in such a driving smother. The pandanus tree, to which he attached himself, turned over and over in the froth and churn, and it was only by holding on at times and waiting and at other times shifting his grips rapidly, that he was able to get his head and Nikaguros to the surface at intervals sufficiently near together to keep the breath in them. But the air was mostly water, what with flying spray and sheeted rain that, that poured out at right angles to the perpendicular. It was ten miles across the lagoon to the farther ring of sand. Here, tossing tree trunks, timbers, wrecks of cutters, and wreckage of houses, killed nine out of ten of the miserable beings who survived the passage of the lagoon. Half drowned, exhausted, they were hurled into this mad mortar of the elements and battered into formless flesh. But Mapui was fortunate. His chance was the one in ten. It fell to him by the freakage of fate. He emerged upon the sand, bleeding from a score of wounds. Nikagura's left arm was broken, the fingers of her right hand were crushed, and cheek and forehead were laid open to the bone. He clutched a tree that yet stood and clung on, holding the girl and sobbing for air, while the waters of the lagoon washed by knee-high and at times waist-high. At three in the morning the backbone of the hurricane had broken. By five no more than a stiff breeze was blowing, and by six it was dead calm and the sun was shining. The sea had gone down. On the yet restless edge of the lagoon, Mapui saw the broken bodies of those who had failed in the landing. Undoubtedly, Tafara and Nori were among them. He went along the beach examining them and came upon his wife, lying half in and half out of the water. He sat down and wept, making harsh animal noises after the manner of primitive grief. Then she stirred uneasily and groaned. He looked more closely. Not only was she alive, but she was uninjured. She was merely sleeping. Hers also had been the same one chance in ten. Of the twelve hundred alive the night before, but three hundred remained. The Mormon missionary and a gendarme made the census. 
The lagoon was cluttered with corpses. Not a house nor a hut was standing. In the whole atoll not two stones remained one upon the other. One in fifty of the coconut palms still stood. And they were wrecks, while not on one of them remained a single nut. There was no fresh water. The shallow wells that caught the surface seepage of the rain were filled with salt. Out of the lagoon a few soaked bags of flour were recovered. The survivors cut the hearts out of the fallen coconut trees and ate them. Here and there they crawled into tiny hutches made by hollowing out the sand and covering over with fragments of metal roofing. The missionary made a crude still, but he could not distill water for three hundred persons. By the end of the second day, Raoul, taking a bath in the lagoon, discovered that his thirst was somewhat relieved. He cried out the news, and thereupon three hundred men, women, and children could have been seen standing up to their necks in the lagoon and trying to drink water in through their skins. Their dead floated about them, or were stepped upon where they still lay upon the bottom. On the third day the people buried their dead and sat down to wait for the rescue steamers. In the meantime, Naori, torn from her family by the hurricane, had been swept away on an adventure of her own. Clinging to a rough plank that wounded and bruised her and that filled her body with splinters, she was thrown clear over the atoll and carried away to sea. Here, under the amazing buffets of mountains of water, she lost her plank. She was an old woman, nearly sixty, but she was Pomatan-born, and she'd never been out of sight of the sea in her life. Swimming in the darkness, strangling, suffocating, fighting for air, she was struck a heavy blow on the shoulder by a coconut. On the instant her plan was formed, and she seized the nut. In the next hour she captured seven more. Tied together, they formed a life buoy that preserved her life, while at the same time it threatened to pound her to a jelly. She was a fat woman, and she bruised easily, but she had had experience of hurricanes, and while she prayed to her shark god for protection from sharks, she waited for the wind to break. But at three o'clock she was in such a stupor that she did not know. Nor did she know at six o'clock when the dead calm settled down. She was shocked into consciousness when she was thrown upon the sand. She dug in with raw and bleeding hands and feet, and clawed against the backwash until she was beyond the reach of the waves. She knew where she was. The land could be no other than the tiny island of Takakota. It had no lagoon, and no one lived upon it. Hikuru was fifteen miles away. She couldn't see Hikuru, but she knew that it lay to the south. The days went by, and she lived on the coconuts that had kept her afloat. They supplied her with drinking water and with food. But she did not drink all she wanted, nor eat all she wanted. Rescue was problematical. She saw the smoke of the rescue steamers on the horizon, but what steamer could be expected to come to a lonely, uninhabited Takakota? From the first she was tormented by corpses. The sea persisted in flinging them upon her bit of sand, and she persisted, until her strength failed, in thrusting them back into the sea where the sharks tore at them and devoured them. When her strength failed, the bodies festooned her beach with ghastly horror, and she withdrew from them as far as she could, which was not far. By the tenth day her last coconut was gone, and she was shriveling from thirst. She dragged herself along the sand, looking for coconuts. It was strange that so many bodies floated up, and no nuts. Surely there were more coconuts afloat than dead men. She gave up at last, and lay exhausted. The end had come. Nothing remained but to wait for death. 
Coming out of a stupor, she became slowly aware that she was gazing at a patch of sandy red hair on the head of a corpse. The sea flung the body toward her, then drew it back. It turned over, and she saw that it had no face. Yet there was something familiar about that patch of sandy red hair. An hour passed. She did not exert herself to make the identification. She was waiting to die, and it mattered little to her what man that thing of horror once might have been. But at the end of the hour she sat up slowly and stared at the corpse. An unusually large wave had thrown it beyond the reach of the lesser waves. Yes, she was right. That patch of red hair could belong to but one man in the Pomotus. It was Levy, the German Jew, the man who had bought the pearl and carried it away on the Hira. Well, one thing was evident. The Hira had been lost. The pearl buyer's god of fishermen and thieves had gone back on him. She crawled down to the dead man. His shirt had been torn away, and she could see the leather money belt around his waist. She held her breath and tugged at the buckles. They gave easier than she had expected, and she crawled hurriedly away across the sand, dragging the belt after her. Pocket after pocket she unbuckled in the belt and found them all empty. Where could he have put it? In the last pocket of all, she found it, the first and only pearl he had bought on the voyage. She crawled a few feet further, to escape the pestilence of the belt and examined the pearl. It was the one Mapui had found had been robbed of by Toriki. She weighed it in her hand and rolled it back and forth caressingly, but in it she saw no intrinsic beauty. What she did see was the house Mapui and Tafara and she had builded so carefully in their minds. Each time she looked at the pearl, she saw the house in all its details, including the oxygen drop clock on the wall. That was something to live for. We'll return to Jack London's classic adventure, The House of Mapui, Part 2, right after this sponsor message. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options. In stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at and now, back to our story. She tore a strip from her ahu and tied the pearl securely about her neck. Then she went on along the beach, panting and groaning, but resolutely seeking for coconuts. Quickly she found one, and, as she glanced around, a second. She broke one, drinking its water, which was mildewy, and eating the last particle of the meat. A little later she found a shattered dugout. Its outrigger was gone, but she was hopeful and before the day was out, she found the outrigger. Every find was an augury. The pearl was a talisman. Late in the afternoon, she saw a wooden box floating low in the water. When she dragged it out on the beach, its contents rattled, and inside she found ten tins of salmon. She opened one by hammering it on the canoe. When a leak was started, she drained the tin. After that, she spent several hours in extracting the salmon, hammering and squeezing it out, a morsel at a time. Eight days longer she waited for rescue. In the meantime, she fastened the outrigger back on the canoe, using for lashings all the coconut fiber she could find, and also what remained of her ahu. The canoe was badly cracked, and she could not make it watertight, but a calabash made from a coconut she stored on board worked as a baler. 
she was hard put for a paddle. With a piece of tin she sawed off all her hair, close to the scalp. Out of the hair she braided a cord, and by means of the cord she lashed a three-foot piece of broom handle to a board from the salmon case. She gnawed wedges with her teeth, and with them wedged the lashing. On the eighteenth day, at midnight, she launched the canoe through the surf and started back for Hikuru. She was an old woman. Hardship had stripped her fat from her till scarcely more than bones and skin and a few stringy muscles remained. The canoe was large and should have been paddled by three strong men. But she did it alone, with a makeshift paddle. Also, the canoe leaked badly, and one-third of her time was devoted to bailing. By clear daylight, she looked vainly for Ikuru. Astern, Takakota had sunk beneath the sea rim. The sun blazed down on her nakedness, compelling her body to surrender its moisture. Two tins of salmon were left, and in the course of the day she battered holes in them and drained the liquid. She had no time to waste in extracting the meat. A current was setting to the westward, and she made westing whether she made southing or not. In the early afternoon, standing upright in the canoe, she sighted Hikuru. Its wealth of coconut palms was gone. Only here and there at wide intervals could she see the ragged remnants of trees. The sight cheered her. She was nearer than she had thought. The current was setting her to the westward. She bore up against it and paddled on. The wedges in the paddle lashing worked loose, and she lost much time, at frequent intervals, in driving them tight. Then there was the bailing. One hour in every three she had to seize paddling in order to bail, and all the time she drifted to the westward. By sunset, Hikuru bore southeast from her, three miles away. There was a full moon, and by eight o'clock the land was due east and two miles away. She struggled on for another hour, but the land was as far away as ever. She was in the main grip of the current. The canoe was too large. The paddle was too inadequate, and too much of her time and strength were wasted in bailing. Besides, she was very weak, and growing weaker. Despite her efforts, the canoe was drifting off to the westward. She breathed a prayer to her shark god, slipped over the side, and began to swim. She was actually refreshed by the water, and quickly left the canoe astern. At the end of an hour the land was perceptibly nearer. Then came her fright. Right before her eyes, not twenty feet away, a large fin cut the water. She swam steadily toward it, and slowly it glided away, curving off toward the right and circling around her. She kept her eyes on the fin and swam on. When the fin disappeared, she lay face downward in the water and watched. When the fin reappeared, she resumed her swimming. The monster was lazy, she could see that. Without doubt he had been well fed since the hurricane. Had he been very hungry, she knew he would not have hesitated for making a dash for her. He was fifteen feet long, and one bite, she knew, could cut her in half. But she did not have any time to waste on him. Whether she swam or not, the current drew away from the land just the same. A half hour went by, and the shark began to grow bolder. Seeing no harm in her, he drew closer, in narrowing circles, cocking his eyes at her impudently as he slid past. Sooner or later, she knew well enough, he would get up sufficient courage to dash at her. She resolved to play first. It was a desperate act she meditated. She was an old woman, alone in the sea and weak from starvation and hardship. And yet she, in the face of this sea tiger, 
must anticipate his dash by herself dashing at him. She swam on, waiting her chance. At last he passed languidly by, barely eight feet away. She rushed at him suddenly, feigning that she was attacking him. He gave a wild flirt of his tail as he fled away, and his sandpaper hide, striking her, took off her skin from elbow to shoulder. He swam rapidly in a widening circle, and at last disappeared. In the hole in the sand, covered over by fragments of metal roofing, Mapuhi and Tafara lay disputing. If you had done as I said, charged Tafara for the thousandth time, and hidden the pearl and told no one, you would have it now. But Huruhuru was with me when I opened the shell. Have I not told you so many times and times without end? And now we shall have no house. Raoul told me today that if you had not sold the pearl to Toriki, I did not sell it. Toriki robbed me for a debt. That if you had not sold the pearl, he would give you five thousand French dollars, which is ten thousand Chile. He has been talking to his mother, Bapui explained. She has an eye for a pearl. And now the pearl is lost, Tafera complained. It paid my debt with Toriki. That's twelve hundred I have made anyway. Toriki's dead, she cried. They have heard no word of his schooner. She was lost along with the Aori and the Hira. Will Toriki pay you the three hundred credit he promised? No, because Toriki is dead. And had you found no pearl, would you today owe Toriki the twelve hundred? No, because Toriki is dead, and you cannot pay dead men. But Levy did not pay Toriki, Mapui said. He gave him a piece of paper that was good for the money in Papiti. And now Levy is dead and cannot pay. And Tariki is dead, and the paper is lost with him, and the pearl is lost with Levy. And now Levy is dead and cannot pay, and Tariki is dead, and the paper lost with him, and the pearl is lost with Levy. You are right, Tavera. I have lost the pearl, and got nothing for it. Now can we sleep? He held up his hand suddenly and listened. From without came a noise, as if one who breathed heavily and with pain. A hand fumbled against the mat that served for a door. "'Who's there?' Mapui cried. "'Nori!' came the answer. "'Can you tell me, where is my son, Mapui?' Tafara screamed and gripped her husband's arm. "'A ghost!' she chattered. Mapui's face was a ghastly yellow. He clung weakly to his wife. "'Good woman!' he said, in faltering tones, striving to disguise his voice. I know your son well. He's living on the east side of the lagoon. From without came the sound of a sigh. Mapui began to feel elated. He had fooled the ghost. Where do you come from, old woman? He asked. From the sea, was the dejected answer. I knew it! I knew it! Screamed Tafara, rocking to and fro. Since when has Tafara bedded in a strange house? Came Nuri's voice through the matting. Mapui looked fear and reproach at his wife. It was her voice that had betrayed them. And since when has Mapui, my son, denied his old mother? The voice went on. No, I have not. Mapui has not denied you, he cried. I am not Mapui. He is on the east end of the lagoon, I tell you. Nakagura sat up in bed and began to cry. The matting started to shake. What are you doing? Mapui demanded. 
"'I am coming in,' said the voice of Nori. "'One end of the matting lifted. "'Tafara tried to dive under the blankets, "'but Mapui held on to her. "'He had to hold on to something. "'Together, struggling with each other, "'with shivering bodies and chattering teeth, "'they gazed with protruding eyes at the lifting mat. "'They saw Nori, dripping with seawater, "'without her ahu, creep in. "'They rolled over backward from her "'and fought for Nakagura's blanket "'with which to cover their heads.' "'You might give your old mother a drink of water,' the ghost said plaintively. "'Give her a drink of water,' Tafara commanded in a shaking voice. "'Give her a drink of water,' Mapui passed on the command to Nakagura, and together they kicked out Nakagura from under the blanket. A minute later, peeping, Mapui saw the ghost drinking. When it had reached out a shaking hand and laid it on his, he felt the weight of it and was convinced that it was no ghost.' Then he emerged, dragging Tafara after him, and in a few minutes all were listening to Nori's tale. And when she told of Levi and dropped the pearl into Tafara's hand, even she was reconciled to the reality of her mother-in-law. "'In the morning,' said Tafara, "'you will sell the pearl to Raoul for five thousand French.' "'The house?' objected Nori. "'He will build the house,' Tafara answered. "'He weighs it will cost four thousand French.' Also will he give one thousand French in credit, which is two thousand chili. And it will be six fathoms long? Nori queried. Aye, answered Mapui, six fathoms. And in the middle room will be the octagon drop clock? Aye, and the round table as well. Then give me something to eat, for I am hungry, said Nori, complacently. And after that we will sleep, for I am weary. And tomorrow we will have more talk about the house before we sell the pearl. It will be better if we take the thousand French in cash. Money is even better than credit in buying goods from the traders. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales for this Jack London South Seas Adventure. We always appreciate reviews and we like to read reviews. And here are a few recent ones for 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. A fun podcast to listen to. Five stars. I just really like how there's such a good variety of styles of storytelling from each of the authors. Most of these I haven't heard before, so each week is something to look forward to. By the way, I'm not sure if this author is one you would consider, but short stories by Patrick F. McManus are some of my favorites. That one from Johnner via Apple Podcast U.S. And Johnner, I did check, and Patrick F. McManus is a great humorist and tells some very funny stories, especially about the outdoors, but he's not in the public domain. But I do encourage all of you who are checking out different literature to check out Patrick F. McManus, M-C-M-A-N-U-S. And thank you, Johnner, for the review. I appreciate it. And this one, 1001 Series, 5 Stars. have been listening in for such a long time. Storytelling content and voice tone is spot on. Thank you. Peter, West Australia. Down from Boomer PF, Apple Podcast, Australia. So if you have a few extra minutes and you enjoy our show, please do send us a review. That's, a lot, that's how a lot of new people do find us. That and when you share our show with others. That's the biggest way. Thank you all for being great listeners and fans. Don't forget to join our group at Facebook.com if you're a Facebook user. We do have a group there at Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash 1001 Heroes. Just look for group. And despite any cues you might see, it's always open to join. You just apply to join, and as soon as we find it, you're in. 
So I'll be posting there pretty soon. Everyone out there, stay safe. And we'll be back with a brand new episode next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll see you then. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.